scripture this morning is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted highly himself and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to be talking about Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. That is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. You did hear me right. That is 20 verses today that we're going to cover. So you might want to nudge your neighbor and say, if I start to drift off, you can nudge me. If you start to drift off, I'll nudge you. Because we're going to tackle all 20 of these verses, and we'll look at all of them. And it'll be a great thing to do. See, what's actually really interesting, I think it's really important that we do hone in this morning. We obviously want to say that every Sunday, anytime we open up the Word of God. But what's happening in this particular passage is Jesus is calling the 12 to himself. 12 men who will be his apostles. 12 men who he's going to use to do things like write the Bible, do things like be the leaders of the very first Christian church ever, do things like expand the gospel message all throughout the entire world. And Jesus is pulling these 12 to himself, and he is giving them some private attention and some private teaching. And as that happens, and we see that happening in the Bible, I think it should cause us to to get up on the front of our seat a little bit, lean in a little closer and listen Because whatever it is that Jesus wants to say to the 12 people who are going to lead his church, it's got to be really important. That he's going to take the time and the intentionality to to speak directly to these men because he has something to tell them that is going to radically change their lives and the lives of literally millions of people who will hear about the gospel through their legacy. So we want to scoot up We want to listen in and say, what is Jesus teaching them? And what we're going to see this morning is the central theme of all of these teachings in these 20 verses. It can feel like they're not very joined together. It's these kind of snapshots, if you will. But there is a central theme. That theme is humility. See, the thing that Jesus wants to teach and instill in his disciples is not knowledge, power, wisdom. It's, guys, you've got to be humble. If you're going to walk like me and be like me, represent me to this world, you must be humble. Because the very thing that Jesus uses to frame out all this teaching, what it looks like to follow Jesus in his humility, he tells us in verses 30 to 32. It reads, And then they went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. 
but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. See, the statement that's going to frame out all of Jesus' teaching in these next 18 verses is that the Son of Man is going to be humiliated and die for the sins of other people and then rise again. That passage in Philippians that we read in our scripture reading shows us that it tells us literally that he humbled himself even unto death. And that's what we have to see. That's the framework Jesus is providing. He is saying that, and the text tells us, but they didn't understand what this dying and rising meant. So Jesus teaches them what that means in these next 18 verses. And I think for us, as we might say, yeah, I know what the dying and rising of Jesus means. He died, and then he rose again three days later. That's easy. But so often, do we really understand the implications of all that means for our lives? What does the dying and rising of Jesus have to do with your Monday through Saturday? Is it just fire insurance to keep you out of hell? Or does it speak to the everyday nature of your life and mine? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. And one of the ways that it speaks to my life and speaks to your life is that we must be humble if we are going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, humility is a necessity. It's something that we must do. And so that's what we're going to see this morning, is that we are to be a humble people. We're going to take this in three sections, and we're going to see that we're going to be humble servants, humble co-laborers, and finally humble caregivers. We'll take this one chunk at a time, if you will, these next few verses. So we look first at verse 33 through 37. It says, and they came to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. They're traveling on their way, and apparently the disciples have this argument, and Jesus, when they finally get a place to stop, he pulls them in, and he, he's going to confront them. He's going to talk to them about this. Now listen, this is something that's really interesting about Jesus. It's, it's something we've got to see. Jesus is not passive-aggressive. Jesus confronts them directly to their face. He doesn't go about some way. He doesn't try to sneak around. He just sits them down like a parent does a child, a child that's got chocolate all over their face and he's looking at it and saying ah have you had anything to eat lately he knows the answer it's a rhetorical question and how do those kids typically respond in those moments (laughs) silence he'll say anything and that's what we have here in this passage jesus what were you guys talking about on the way and in their embarrassment and in their shame they don't answer. It says, but they kept silent. But Mark tells us, for they were arguing with one another about who is the greatest. They've been caught. But Jesus, just like any good, well-intentioned, fatherly figure in their life, isn't going to let them just get away with it. It's right, isn't it? It wouldn't be easy. The argument's settled. The dust, the dust has is, is kind of settled down, and it's easy just to say, like, ah, does it really matter that much? 
We don't really need to talk about this. It's, it's gone. It's over. Well, I think that depends on what we're arguing about. It depends the nature of what's happening. And what I want us to see is that humility and pride isn't something where it's like, ah, I mean, it's kind of socially acceptable. Is it really that big of a deal to be prideful? Well, according to Jesus, it's a big enough deal that he pulls them in, just the 12 of them, and says, hey, what were you talking about on the road? We need, we need to talk about this. When I talk to my son and we have to do discipline, we sit down and it's things that matter. Hey, I saw you yell at your sister and raise your fist at her. I can't ignore that. We need to go talk about this. We need to have a conversation. See, humility is something that I think we can kind of brush off to the side and, we, and all of us can say, like, yeah, I could be a little more humble. But we have to say, no, this, is, this matters. This is so important. It's, it's, it's coming right into Jesus saying, no, guys, 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 if you're going to lead my church, if you're going to do the things that I'm calling you to do, you have to get this. You have to get this. What were you talking about on the road? They were arguing about who is the greatest. And when they don't answer, Jesus sits them down, calls the twelve to himself, and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. If you're going to lead my people the way that I need you to, you have got to get this. You must be last and you must be a servant of all. And then Jesus gives them an object lesson. And he takes this child and he embraces this child and he says, whoever receives one like this child, now not necessarily in, in this particular passage talking about childlike faith, we have to see in their culture, children are not valued. Children are just, they're kind of a nuisance. They're a hassle. They don't produce anything. I jokingly say sometimes around here when people complain about kids and the craziness, I say, yeah, well, you know, we don't have kids because they're convenient. Children are not convenient. Children don't offer a ton to the community, but they take a ton of resources. But that's kids. And Jesus is saying, listen, whoever receives these little ones who have nothing to offer, the nobodies of our culture, the ones that everybody else is ignoring, that person receives me and receives the one who sent me. That's what it looks like to be last of all and a servant to all. It's to look at everyone, everyone, even the people who don't produce or the people who don't measure up, the people who aren't important to us. Jesus is saying, they're important to me. And when you receive them, when you embrace them into your arms, like I'm embracing this child, that's how you know that you will know what it means to receive Jesus, what it means to know him and love him and receive the one who has sent him. When we look to the least of these and say, they're mine. Peter, James, and John will be crucified upside down. Peter killed with a sword, James, and John is going to get boiled and somehow live through it and then exiled off to an island. That's what Jesus is calling them to. That's what Jesus is calling these men to, to exemplify what it looks like to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But before they can ever get there, before they can ever get to a place where they're going to lay down their life for the gospel's sake, which is literally what he has said in Mark 8, whoever lays down their life for the gospel's sake, he will find it. That's literally what these guys are going to do. Jesus is saying, you're never going to do that if you can't get this. They would not have died for Jesus in this moment. They would not have done that. Because you know what happens at the end of this book? They come to arrest him and they all run away scared. They're not humble men yet. 
They're not ready to pay the price. They're not ready to take up their cross and follow him. And Jesus is drawing them to himself and he is saying, guys, if you don't get this, you won't get these other things. Humble men will lay down their life for the gospel's sake. Prideful men will scatter. That's what we have to see. Jesus is saying, you have to call them in. If you want to lead in God's kingdom, you must be a person who is willing to be last. So what about you? What about me? Do the people that you lead, or they, would they say something like, it's as if he or she is willing to get down on all fours that I might step on their back and that they might exalt me? Do your kids look at you and say, it's like mom and dad would literally lay down their life for me so that I might know Christ? Husbands, would your wife say, he's the kind of guy who will give up his preferences for me over and over and over again because that's what it looks like to lead. Pastor, does your congregation say, he's the kind of person who will die to himself. Boss, do your employees look at you and say, man, he'll, he'll come in early and he'll stay late so that I can go and be with my family. He'll do things that I just, she'll do things. They'll, I, I don't get it. Constantly. They're the boss, I'm the employee, but they will put themselves below me over and over and over again? There's a pastor, his name is Mark Dever. He's known for founding an organization uh, called Nine Marks where they help pastors and churches become healthy. And he says this about authority. He says the misuse of authority is a special kind of sin because when we misuse authority, we misrepresent God. If you want to be first, you must be last to all and a servant to all. Because should God bless you with authority and you don't yield it and wield it the way that God would have you do that, you're misrepresenting God to the people who he has entrusted to you. That's why James tells us, let not many of you become teachers. That's why Peter later is going to tell us, do not lord over them you under-shepherds. Lay down your life for the flock like he did. So what we want to see, what it looks like to apply this passage, is we need to know to be first is to be last and a servant of all. Because after all, that's really what it means just to be a Christian. See, to be a Christian is is to say, I'm going to submit myself to God and in that, willingly love others like I love myself. See, as we do this, we learn learn how to better cooperate together with other people. We learn what it looks like to lay down our life. And that brings us to the next lesson of humility, what it looks like to be a humble co-laborer. That, that Jesus is going to look to them and say, that even means you've got to lay down yourself so that you can work with others who maybe aren't in your tribe. Don't belong to your group of people. In verse 38, John, I guess just as Jesus beloved and kind of the favorite child that he comes off to be as in many of the Gospels, tries to alleviate some of the pressure. 
maybe tries to change the subject a little bit. Maybe even tries to impress Jesus, and it doesn't work. John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do you not stop him? For one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after, in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's really ironic. This is massively ironic. Because what was the last passage about? The disciples and their inability to what? Cast out a demon. And they somehow then come across these guys who are doing the thing they can't do and they're like, hey, stop that. You're not following us. Jesus is like, what are you doing? These disciples have gotten a little too big for their britches. Maybe John and, and Peter and, and James are thinking, well, we got to see the transfiguration. I mean, we're, we're like, we're kind of, the, we're it now. He, he's not following us, Jesus. Notice what they don't say. They don't say, because they're not following you, Jesus. They're not following us. They've elevated themselves. Because Jesus has given them a little, he's, he's, he's calling them into it. They're thinking, oh, I've got some authority now. I got, I've got, and they don't get it. That the closer you get pulled into Jesus, the closer you get pulled into that circle, the more humble you have to become, the more humiliated you're going to be over and over and over again. Jesus is going to tell them, listen, to follow me, you're going to have to walk in my steps, which for these men is going to be literal death, literal severe persecution, That's what he's calling them to do. And they're sitting here saying, hey, you're not following us. You're on our team. He just looks at, listen, if they're doing it in my name, are they really going to be able to speak evil against me? They're doing it according to what my power. We talked about last week. There's no special formula for exorcism. The people who are doing this thing are doing it in the power and the authority in the name of Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and they're doing this. They think that they're special And Jesus even takes it a step further. He says, listen, not only are people who are casting out demons in my name doing a good thing, if they do something as small as give a drink of cold water in my name, they will not lose the reward. See, it's not the work itself that's glorious. It's the name that the work is done in. See, what the disciples don't get is, yeah, you guys have been called and set aside for this task of apostleship that is coming later. But what they don't understand is that doesn't make them special. It doesn't. It doesn't make them more holy. It just means they have a different calling. What we want to see, it's, it's whose name these works are done in. In the modern sense, we can maybe look and say like, oh, you know, the singing and worship leading, that looks kind of cool. I want to do that. I don't want to stack chairs. The preaching, ah, that looks great. I want to do that. I don't want to go grab the signs. I don't want to pull down the pipe and drape. I don't, definitely don't want to watch the kids. But Jesus is so clear. What's the work? What matters? Where's the glory found? It's not in the task. I have never cast out a demon in my life, guys. 
If that's the measure, we're in trouble. Man, I could probably handle giving somebody a cup of drink of cold water in the name of Jesus. That's good news for us. Because we want to see what does it look like to serve and follow Jesus. It means to humble yourself and to get low. And as we get low, we get to see that that enables us and then frees us to work with other people, other tribes, other churches, other denominations. As long as we're working in the name of Jesus. And I think that just means orthodox belief. In Matthew twelve thirty, Jesus actually says the total opposite. He says, whoever isn't for me is against me. And it, that's a little bit confusing. So what in the world does that mean? Well, Matthew chapter 12, he's talking about these Pharisees and scribes who, one, are really, really arrogant and really, really prideful. And they are disbelieving that he is the son of God. And they're saying he's casting out demons in the name of Satan, the name of Beelzebub. And then he tells them, listen, you are getting close to the unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what that ultimately means, what does it mean to blasphemy the Holy Spirit? Well, if the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us, changes our hearts, and breathes belief into us, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to refuse to believe in Jesus as the one and only Son of God. That is the unforgivable sin. If you do not believe in Christ, you will not be forgiven of your sin. If you do not put your faith and hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, you will not be forgiven of sin. You will face God's wrath and rightful judgment and you will spend eternity in hell. That is the truth of the gospel message. That's the only thing. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, all of your sin is forgiven. And so I think when he looks at this and we bring those passages together, he's saying, listen, as long as they're working in my name, working in orthodox Christian belief, Jesus is the only way. He's a part of the, the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. Really basic things. We've got to repent and believe in him. We cannot save ourselves. Works don't save us. Grace alone saves us. Easy stuff. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. We can work with those folks and should strive to work with those people. But here's the really hard part for us today is right now is probably the easiest moment in my pastoral career ever where I get to preach that message. Because we're nobodies. We're 20 people meeting in a gymnasium who don't pay our own bills. It's easy for me to sit here and preach, cooperate with other churches. Because we're the large benefactor of other churches. You know what gets hard to cooperate with other churches? When you're the old church in town and maybe they're leaving your church to go somewhere else. That's harder. Not when you're the new guy in town and everybody who's coming is maybe leaving them and coming to you. Why is that? Why is it easy to cooperate when you're the low person? When you're the one who is the, doesn't have the resources? Because that's the secret to Humility. Humility is easy when you have a low view of yourself. Humility gets hard when you have a high view of yourself. I would maybe want to say it even like this. Humility gets a lot simpler when you have an accurate view of yourself. Right now, we have an accurate view of our church, and that's this. We will never make it if God doesn't help us. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders work in vain. Right? That's easy to see right now. It gets a little harder when you have a couple hundred people showing up. A little easier to feel like, yeah, maybe we got something figured out. 
But we've got to stay close to what the Bible says no matter what God calls us to do. We have to have an accurate view of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, the Apostle Paul tells us this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We must have an accurate view of ourselves. That's what we have to apply from this. When you see yourself rightly as a sinner saved by grace alone, humility gets a whole lot easier. When you see that it's not your ideas, it's not your creativity, it's not your thing that builds the kingdom of God, but it's God who does it in spite of you, not because of you, humility gets a lot easier. We're able to actually walk in the footsteps of Jesus because we're able to be humble no matter what he calls you to, whether that is casting out demons or being the water boy and giving somebody a cold cup of water in the name of Jesus, we get the joy and privilege of seeing that the glory is not found in the work. The glory is not found in the cool thing that I get to do or don't do, but the glory is found in the name of Jesus, the one who provides the power and the success. This is the only view that we can have of ourselves, a view in which God is exalted high and we are brought low. Only this rightful view will help us care for one another and care for even our own souls as we fight against sin. As we look to these last few verses together. Now I'm going to break these apart a a bit. As we look at what it looks like to be a humble caregiver. And we can see there that he's going to encourage us to care for others. He's going to encourage us to care for our own soul. He's going to talk about what this looks like. And what actually seems to be happening is Mark is probably writing down a mnemonic teaching. So these, these teachings, again, they're strung together with humility, but they're kind of all over the place in what they're teaching. What's happening is probably there's a mnemonic device happening because there's an oral tradition initially before these gospels get written. And what you see is, is he talks about death, hell, fire, and salt. And he kind of uses these words as he moves from teaching to teaching. And in that mnemonic, you can kind of think of uh, if you've ever studied for a test and come up with like a weird kind of, I don't know, things like, uh, you know, face, which is like F-A-C-E, which is if, in, uh, if the trouble class, that's the spaces, right? And you come up with that when you're writing music or things. Like, that's a mnemonic advice. It's helping you do that. What's happening in the early centuries, a lot of Jesus' teachings, a lot of these teachings, Jesus probably taught more than one time. He traveled. He had an itinerant ministry. He probably taught them to the disciples in these kind of moments. But he also taught them in other places. And we, and we actually see these specific teachings in other spots in the storyline in the other Gospels. And so Mark is probably using that to a mnemonic device of how can I remember these teachings? Uh, death, hell, salt, or fire, salt, right? And that kind of moves him from teaching to teaching. And that's how we're going to move through this together as we just kind of look at this one by one. So first, we want to look at verse 42. 
is the first kind of teaching that comes, and again, I think humility is strung, is the is kind of thing that strings them all together. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, which obviously he would die, right? So a millstone, it, it's like one time, you know, you might think like, oh man, it's like having a cinder block and trying to tread water. A millstone is a, such a large stone that literally like an ox or like a donkey would have to pull it so it could grind grain. A millstone isn't something that like Kendall and John could get together and tie around my neck, okay? A millstone is something like we would have to get a ox in here, pull it up on stage, and then tie it around my neck if I were going to give you the illustration. And then Jesus is saying, now swim. You ain't swimming with that. You're, you're done, Right? And the sea in general in Jewish culture was seen as a place of chaos and a place of judgment. Drowning was seen as one of the worst ways to die. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you cause one of my little ones, which I, I tend to believe he's talking about just disciples in general, believers who are maybe weaker in their faith. It's possible maybe he's talking about children because of the earlier thing. Either way, I think we can all agree. If you are messing with people who are weak, in faith, if you're causing them to stumble away, Jesus is saying the judgment is extreme. You need to look out and you need to beware. And as we look at that, we think, well, how does humility play into that? I think he's warning against false teaching. He's warning against false teaching. He's saying false teachers are the ones who pull this away. Listen, only prideful people say they know anything about God apart from the word of God. You have got to be filled with an enormous amount of arrogance to say, I know something about God that the Bible doesn't teach about God. The humble man or woman, the humble disciple of Jesus says, I don't know anything about God unless he has revealed it. And that's what we see humility is doing. Humility saves us from false teaching because humility shows us I can do nothing apart from him. I have nothing to share with you that comes just from Josh. It's got to come from the Bible. It's got to come from the Word of God. And that will always lead us to life and never into death. We then see the next thing. As Jesus talked about these extreme measures, what it looks like to keep yourself from sin. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better you enter into life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where a worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, if we all took this passage, literally, we would be blind and without arms or legs when we got in here next week, right? Because we know we all sin, What's going on? What is Jesus saying? What is he asking these guys to do? I never, we haven't, we don't hear of the, you know, one-armed apostle. Like, it doesn't seem that that's what's happening. But we do see that Jesus calls them to a radical sense of obedience. Again, there at the end of Mark chapter 8, he is saying, pick up your cross and follow me. It is a radical kind of obedience. In counseling, I often, we would often call this radical amputation. Some of us have sin in our life and the reality is is you need to cut out some relationships with people because they're tempting to you in ways and you just don't have the ability to say no. And you need to be honest about that. And you're just gonna have to cut off some of those relationships. 
Some of you are going to need to cut off some access to other things that other people can have access to. Maybe that's a substance. Maybe that's technology. Maybe it's just time being alone. And you're just going to have to make those hard calls and those hard choices to do what we might call radical amputation of saying, I just can't handle this right now in my life. It's a good gift. It's a good thing. But right now, I've got to set this aside. I cannot handle it because it leads me into sin and I just don't have the ability to do those things. This is a meaningful thing. Jesus talked about radical measures to his obedience. He quotes from Isaiah 66, 24, which is towards the end of the book of Isaiah. It's actually the last verse of the book of Isaiah. And right before that, Isaiah is talking about the new heaven and the new earth, which are gonna last forever. And then he talks about, and I look and I see their dead bodies, the judgment where the worm never dies and never sleeps. And I think he's pointing to the eternality of hell. The hell lasts forever. If the new heavens and new earth last forever, then hell lasts forever too. And Jesus is saying, we need to do all we can, all we can to, to not end up there, but to end up with him forever. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 warns us, take care, brothers, lest there be any of, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm, confidence firm to the end. We believe that God is going to fulfill his promise of perseverance and endurance in your life, but we believe he's going to do it through his means, right? What we're saying here is the body of Christ is meant to come around you and encourage you toward good gifts. This is a warning passage for even us believers, the deceitfulness, the hardness of sin, don't let it convince you to walk away from God because what we're saying is God in his promises will make sure that you do stay firm to the end. But he does that through a particular kind of means, through the local church, the preaching of his word, the power of his spirit, study of the Bible, prayer. And if you run away from those things and you have no desire for those things, we have to question, are you a believer? And Jesus is saying, listen, if you love me, if you follow me, if you're really a humble person who submitted himself to God, when sin creeps its way into your life, you're going to be the kind of person who will even take radical measures to eradicate sin. That's what it means to follow in the likeness of Jesus, is that you're going to be willing to do those kinds of things. Next, as we followed in the mnemonic, he's talking about fire. He now moves that fire, speech of fire, and talks about salt. In verse 49, he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Again, at the end of Mark 8, which he's then pulling out in the Mark chapter 9, and he's teaching it and giving examples of that passage, he's calling them to suffering. He is calling them that their lives are going to be difficult and hard. What we are saying is suffering seasons the, light, the life of the believer. Suffering makes you more tasty in the eyes of God. Salt is a preservative at this time. What brings the flavor? What brings, the preser- what brings that perseverance? What brings the endurance? It's going to be suffering. God will use suffering in your life to make you more like himself. It seasons our life. 
Romans 5, 3 through 5 tells us, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We must see that suffering is ordained by God in our lives. Which means it's never going to be wasted. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering in the life of the Christian. No such thing. God will use every ounce of your pain and difficulty to make you look more like him, to help you grow in your faith and to change you. He is promising that to you and he's promising that to these disciples who he is calling to endure beating, mockery, shame, and yes, for for 11 of them. 11 out of the 12, John is the only one who does not die. He's the only one. And they try to kill him. He just miraculously lives, according to church tradition. The church tradition says they boil him in oil, and he comes out preaching Christ. And nobody knows how he lives. Again, that's not in the Bible. If we get there and we're wrong, I guess it could be. But that's the tradition. Everyone else dies for their faith. That's what Jesus is calling to them too. And he's telling them, listen, that's going to season your life. It'll make you look more like Christ. And then he talks about salt. Again, salt is used to enhance flavor. It's meant to preserve. And in verse 50, it says, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I've heard a lot of really complicated things, and maybe I'm just not smart enough to get it, about chemistry and how salt works and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a little more simple than that. I think he's just saying, if salt loses the thing that makes it salt, what is it? Christian, if we lose the thing that makes us a Christian, what are we? John 13, 35, Jesus tells us, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The series of teaching opened up with what? Disciples arguing on the road. They're at enmity with each other. They're fighting one another about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, listen, you're losing what makes you salty. You're losing the thing that makes you taste good. Be at peace with one another. You're losing the very thing that makes you a Christian. And that's the humility that enables you to have peace. See, humility strings all of these teachings together. Only the humble person cares for the weak. Only the humble person looks at the weak, the little in faith, and says, I want to help you grow. Only the humble person says, and I know the only way I can help you is not through me, but by pointing you to someone better and greater in Jesus. Humility is what it takes to give up the things that you love for the sake of holiness. Only a humble man and woman will say, yeah, 
I will let you put the software on my computer so I can't keep looking at the things I don't want to look at. Yes, I'll stop drinking the alcohol because I can't say no after one or two. Yes, I'm going to quit doing X, Y, Z. My phone isn't coming with me to my bedroom anymore. I'm going to leave it outside because I'm staying up all night worrying and researching and having this anxiety. I'm going to keep it away. Only the humble person says, I'm too weak to enjoy these good things right now. I'm going to set them aside for a time. Only humility drives us to say, I need help. I need accountability. I need radical measures to be like Jesus. Only the humble person sees that suffering is for you and not against you. Only when we are truly humble do we look at the difficulty and the gut-wrenching parts of life and say, God, you are still good. God, you are using this The arrogant and the prideful say, God, what are you doing? Don't you know better? Humility requires us to humble ourselves before God and say, I know nothing. I know nothing. You know everything. Have your way with me, and I'm going to trust that you will season me with this suffering. And finally, only the humble will make peace. Only the humble will be at peace with one another because humility requires us to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. We have to see from this series of teachings, our last application point of the day is this. Humility is a Christian necessity. You cannot be a Christian without humility. Because what does it take to be a Christian? Christians say, I am no longer going to live my way, but I will live God's way. That's what it means to be a Christian. That requires an enormous amount of humility. It requires you to say, I am not my own God. God, you have to do this. You have to save me. I've done nothing to save myself. Only a humble person ever gets there. Only a humble person sits at the foot of the cross, worships a dying Savior who they know has resurrected, and only through him, and only through him, can we ever taste real life. Humility is a requirement for the Christian life. It's a necessity. See, the gospel is really simple. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. But the gospel is really, really costly. You are saying it's no longer about my dreams, my hopes, my wants, my desires. You're saying I want to exchange those for something else. It's about God's wants, God's hopes, God's dreams, God's desires. It's going to cost you literally the whole world. But good news, you'll win yourself. March, Mark chapter 8, verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? <laughs> That's the call to follow Jesus. To willingly say, God, it's your way. It's not mine. Let your will be done, not mine. That's what Jesus preaches in Mark 8. 
in Mark 9 through 16, he shows them what that looks like. And it culminates and climaxes when he, the Son of God, sinless, willingly goes to a cross and bears our sin, our shame, our suffering. By his wounds, we are healed. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that God might exalt him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must be first. If we want to be first, we shall be last to all and a servant to all. The question for all of us, the question for me is, are you willing We'll have some time for reflection here soon as we take the Lord's Supper and come together. If you need to talk, you need to confess sin, you can always chat with me after the service. We want to be here for you. We want to help you. Look to our community group leaders. They love to talk to you and help you. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to get right with God. Because when we do that, we get to do this we get to take from this table that none of us come to you on our own. Nobody gets to come here. We all come because he died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, I pray as we sing this song and respond to the sermon, God, that you would prepare our hearts to take uh, the Lord's Supper, to to worship you through this thing that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. And what a joy and what a privilege that we get to just enter into a long line of faithful saints who've been doing really roughly the same things for a long, long time, singing to you, preaching about you, and practicing the ordinances in you. What a wonderful thing. We love you, God. Help us be a humble people. We ask this your name. Amen.